Well, uh, so I'm glad that that was a tough passage for you because that means you were actually understanding it. Yeah. <clears throat> so we've been taking a look at lamentations through Lent and, uh, and trying to figure out this idea of lamenting and what we make of it, how we make sense of it. Um, and uh, today's story obviously is pretty dark, so if you... Uh, have little ones who need to be aware of that, then be aware of that. But um, today's story, to, to really understand the passage we just read, to understand that passage, we really need to learn about where it's coming from, what was happening at the time. And so, let me tell you guys a story. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away from here, there was a little country named Israel. Now, Israel once was free, and it remembers its days of former glory when everything was going so well for it. But now, they'd been conquered. They'd been taken over by the big, bad Babylonian Empire. The biggest, baddest bullies around who were trying to get all sorts of power for themselves and just hurting everybody else while they were doing it. Now, of course, Israel did not like this. Israel didn't like this one bit. Right? They were being kicked around. They were being hurt. So they were trying to figure out, how do we stop getting beaten up? How do we make things better? Then one day, there was an opportunity. Because one day, their chance came because that very big bad bully that was Babylon started getting into a fight with the other big bad bully that was called Egypt. And they were fighting among themselves to see who could be the biggest and the baddest in the land. So little Israel thought to itself, while they're busy fighting themselves, we'll just be over here. We'll just slide away. They won't notice. They won't notice, or, or if they do notice, they won't, they won't even be able to do anything about it. So we'll just slip away. Now, what do you think? Do you think that the Babylonian Empire, the biggest, baddest bullies around, noticed? Yeah, they noticed. And as soon as they got done beating up Egypt, they said to themselves, Oh, that little runt... Israel, they tried to rebel against us and take advantage of us while we were busy. We need to make an example of them so everybody knows that we're the biggest and baddest around. They're going to pay for what they did. So Babylon marched onto the big city of Jerusalem and the most important city in Israel. And did they go in and charge and just utterly wipe them out? No, that's too much work. After all, Jerusalem had this nice big wall to keep them safe. It was hard to get into. So Babylon said, okay, we'll just wait right here. And when you come out, 
will deal with you. Okay, so this might this is the point where I'm going to drop the children's story part because you know we're talking about um, tragic events now, so that doesn't fit the genre as well. Uh, so, <clears throat> look for prolonged siege warfare, which is what we've got going on here. The principle is all about waiting them out because look, they're trapped in the city, right? You're the Babylonian Empire is on the outside, right? So. They can't leave or else they're going to get killed. So they have to stay there, right? But where do you plant your farms? Uh, Do you see when you walk downtown acres and acres of wheat and corn and potatoes in the middle of downtown? No, of course not, because there's not room for it. So you plant it out where there's actually room on the outskirts. But wait, who's outside the city right now? The Babylonian Empire. So you can't get, go get none of your food. So you're cut off from your food and you only have whatever you have on hand. But they can just stay camped out there because they've got all your food. All the food that's growing there. They can just hang out in the middle of those fields just munching your veggies all day long and just sit there until for as long as they want. But you, on the other hand, you who are inside the city, mm, that's a different story. And so start to scramble around a little bit and be like, okay, what do we have? What do we have with us? Uh, we, we've got this little storehouse here, okay? And uh, Jimbo over there has two potatoes. Okay, let's try and pull everything together, right? And then you gather everything. But after a month, or after a couple months, or after a few years, whew, everybody around the city is just starting to starve to death. And grimly, it starts becoming like the Donner Party, where in order to survive, the only thing to eat is people who've died. And they're just trying anything to stay alive, to not starved to death. And during this whole thing, God's prophets in the city are saying to them, just give in. God's not on your side. You're not going to win this anyway, so don't, don't make everybody suffer because of it. But no, the king was resolute. The elites in the city were resolute. They had, brought, they, they had bought into this idea that since Jerusalem is God's city, then... Of course, it's never going to fall. God will protect us. We'll never be defeated. But they were wrong. The Babylonians came and busted through the wall eventually and destroyed the city, burned everything down, looted everything. Then they hauled off the elite folks as the prisoners of war, 800 miles away to Babylon, never to see their home again. And then, in the aftermath of that, who's left... But, so, I mean, there's a couple folks who supported Babylon all the time. And so Babylon was like, we like you guys. We'll keep you around. Uh, and then everybody else thinks they're traitors and co-conspirators and collaborators. And then there's the non-elite folk, the normal folk. And they're left in this city where everything's destroyed and burned to the ground. And, and, and then to top that on the way out, the Babylonians torched all the fields around them, 
right? So they've got, still got nothing to eat. And they have to wait until the next harvest to be able to even get food. So it wasn't like all of a sudden, oh, the siege is done, we can eat. It's the siege is done, and we're still starving to death. Everyone's starving to death. Their society's in shambles. They have no government. They have no social structure. Everybody's brought down to the level of scrounging around for food, of scavenging, even if they've never had to do a day of work before in their lives. And so this, this whole siege and the aftermath, this is when Lamentations is written. This is what it's responding to. Lamentations is uh, comprised of five poems that are these highly refined poems, but they still get at the rawness of living under terror and starvation and destruction. They're part of the process of trying to come to grips with what happened. Like, take this passage we read this morning. It's reaching at the bounds of language to try and articulate just something of what this horrific experience was like. It's like, we used to be, I don't know, brilliant plates. Brilliant golden plates, but now we're just everyday dishes. We can't feed our own children who are pathetically crying out to us because they're starving. Our finest clothing has become tattered rags, at least for Sodom, that, that archetypical evil city that God wiped clean off the map, at least for them. They died quickly and didn't have to suffer, unlike us. It would have been better to be them. It would have been better just to have died in battle rather than living through this. I'm trying to come to grips with how do I put words to this experience? And so, one of the things we notice of that is the people writing it are it's from the experience of the elites, not the everyday Joe. But for them, what we've got is their entire world. It was going so well for them, right? It just collapsed all around them. It just shattered in their life is now worse than death. They're trying to put words to this dramatic and and deeply distressing shift in their circumstances. And so they compose laments. And this story from 2,500 years ago evokes so much depth of tragedy. And and as, as we mentioned over the last couple weeks, we Americans are rather emotionally stunted. We, we don't really know how to look at, how to sit with grief, how to actually experience negative emotions, and we just try and move on from them. But within our very own scripture, within those very documents that we say that somehow God is speaking to us through, within these we have a model of, a, of how one people at one moment in history undergoing a particular tragedy, a particular trauma, how they go about trying to process the devastation that they've experienced through these laments, 
through the process of crying out, through trying to put some words to their experience and really get at the rawness of it, through sitting with the hard questions of God, why did you allow this to happen and why, what did I do to deserve it? We're not trying to make everything better instantly. We're not trying to excuse it. We're not trying to wrap it up with a pretty theological bow. We're allowing ourselves to really feel the weight of the tragedy, to not short-circuit our emotions. And in this more fulsome reaction, to move toward a place of more robust healing. So as with the last weeks, during this Lenten season, during these weeks between now and Easter, may you take the journey with me and with us into deep self-examination, into taking up those painful things that we would rather not look at, so that on the other side we may emerge more whole. May it be so.